Philip Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination, which is nearly finished. Storytelling is a powerful political tool. Becoming better storytellers has been shown to make a huge difference to the impact and efficacy of activist groups and campaigns. The Centre for Story-Based Strategy, where imagination builds power, are pioneers in this field. They work with groups, giving them the tools to make the most of the power of imagination, building their capacity to intervene in narratives and in social change work. They particularly work with groups in frontline communities that are at the intersection of poverty, pollution and racism, with a focus on climate, economic and social justice. Their work is incredible, so it was a huge honour to be able to talk to Shana McDavis-Conway, co-director of the centre. I started by asking her why does she think that story and the cultivation of strong narratives are so vital to bringing about change? Oh, so many reasons. I mean, part of it is I think that our, our communities already have a lot of skills in terms of lobbying skills, and um, we have such a long history of organizing, community organizing you know, in the US. So it's not that other things aren't important, um, but we really found that the missing piece was around storytelling. When you tried to examine why there were certainly dramatic cultural shifts and because national work was really, really effective, story was often that kind of missing piece that we weren't really talking about. We were talking about tactical uh, work that communities were doing. And so I think when you kind of examine uh, our current political system and how certain ideas continue ideas about poverty and ideas about um, who has power, who's marginalized, particularly around kind of race and class in the U.S. You know, I think those ideas, they're really held up not just by the people in power, but by these kind of underlying stories and narratives that say this is the only way that is possible. These people are smarter or more talented. That's really why they should be running things. Um, and so I think when you're trying to do organizing work, if you don't address those underlying narratives and work to both shift them, kind of shift away towards more liberation, but also to create alternative narratives that are really about liberation, then it's going to be really difficult to do that work. And so I think that's really why we got started. We saw it as a need and that there were already people who were starting to do really playful things around uh, direct action and campaign work. When we started, it was really in the the second Bush <laughs> administration, not the first. I've been reading a lot about him lately, but the second one. And so there, you know, there was just this. Um, it wasn't the same level of despair, I think, around Trump. It was a different kind <laughs> of frustration, uh, but people were frustrated, and so I think it created a space for people to want to do. Uh, storytelling and creative interventions in a different way. And so we really wanted those interventions to be strategic, not just kind of street theater or, um, you know, kind of funny things that would hit the news once but not have a meaningful impact. We really wanted people to think about what are these bigger picture narratives in society about who has value and who has humanity and how can we shift them. Mm, Great. And uh, what are your thoughts at the moment about the state of storytelling and of imagination in the world in 2018 would you say that both are in robust health or or, or how would you what would your diagnosis be 
Oh, it's interesting when you were talking about your research. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I actually feel like things are not too terrible. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm only 41, so I, I cannot compare what life was like in the 60s. And maybe it was really amazing then, and it probably was. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I do feel like especially because of digital organizing, there's really been opportunities to uh, do storytelling work in both di in different ways. So, so there's, there's access to technology for communities that previously would not have had the ability to create their own video, their own anima animation, um, their own visuals. But there's also these ways that communities are linked, particularly marginalized communities, in a country as big as the US who just would feel isolated or not know that there were people who kind of like-minded so so I think there are opportunities in our kind of current culture uh, I think there I think that we struggle with a sense of political imagination particularly because we've been told narratives about people for so long uh, they've become true people believe that they are true and so I think trying to shift that is challenging and it's challenging for social change groups as well, particularly in the current climate, where people often are so kind of personally affronted by, you know, alternative facts and uh, the lies that they hear kind of politicians say. And it's easy to get really focused on that. But you know, I think that politicians have not been telling the truth for a really long time. <laughs> it's not necessarily like a dramatic new thing, um, and so. Yeah, I think there's really a need to capture people's political imagination and to show that there are alternatives uh, and that we're really stuck in this dichotomy, say, around unions. So for so long, the, the story about unions has been, um, it's kind of unions versus the environment, that you can either have you know jobs, you can have economic growth, um, you can either have union jobs or you can kind of have a healthy environment and this is just you know a story that has been very effective at uh, impacting the labor movement but it's not necessarily the only story or a true story about unions uh, i think for unions they've been kind of cast as this kind of villainous character and this negative foreshadowing about the future where we're not going to have jobs if we choose to have good jobs and we choose to have worker protections so you know i think they're there are opportunities to really challenge that that I do see, particularly around labor, as things have gotten bad enough that I think unlikely allies have emerged of folks that previously were really invested in not having much political imagination uh, to really see that there are more possibilities. Like, um, like maybe teachers unions in Kentucky. So this, the past couple years, I think just saw this outswell of, of kind of teachers union organizing fighting for things that in communities that to be honest as someone who mostly lives on the coast in the u.s i live in california here now used to live in dc maybe it's easy to write off some parts of the country and that's really where a lot of this came from people who maybe we thought did not have a lot of political imagination and i think it just sparked these exciting ideas that then spread to other places like oklahoma which I don't know if you've ever been to Oklahoma. Um, it's a tough place to be, particularly for African-Americans. It's not a place that I would really want to live, <laughs> to be honest. It's really challenging. And yet 
people were really tired of the years of disinvestment in education and willing to kind of create this alternative story. So, so I guess I feel hopeful because I feel like there's a lot of opportunities right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that certainly the media landscape can make it really challenging, particularly how fast paced it is to really kind of have that intervention and to get people to stop and step away and to really engage in creative work. So can you give us a sense of of what you do at uh, the Centre for Story-Based Strategies? Sure. So we spend a lot of our time providing trainings for social change organisations. So we try to help groups with our, we have a variety of tools. So yes, so we do kind of trainings and provide strategic support to our social change partners. Uh, And then again, we focus mostly on kind of frontline communities, communities that are really dealing with the immediate impacts of kind of climate change and and environmental racism. So we have a couple of trainings coming up. We have one this month in San Francisco with groups that are working on uh, gentrification housing justice uh, here in San Francisco. And then we have one coming up in Chicago um, next year. And that one is actually largely focused on um, ending money bail in kind of in that area and criminal justice work. And then uh, we have our annual advanced training that is coming up in April. That's a week-long training. Most of our trainings are only a day or two. We'll fly in to work with a coalition or a group and kind of help them shape their vision, their kind of overarching story for their their work. Sometimes it's about a specific campaign. Sometimes it's really about what's our bigger vision for what our community could look like. And, you know, what's the story that we get there? And then how do we translate that story um, into kind of specific campaign kind of messaging and and specific characters that we want to kind of cast. You know, how do we get out ahead of what sometimes is a lot of money that these groups are are challenged with in their opponents. So, so it's a lot of the work that we do. And one of the things that I've been looking at and talking to uh, a lot of people about, I was chatting to Kali Akuno in Jackson, the stuff they're oh, doing yeah, with the Corporation that's Jackson one of, the other day. One of our partners. Oh, he's that's so brilliant what they're doing there. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we were talking about what if questions. There's a whole bit I'm writing about the power of asking what if questions. And there's some great examples in the transition movement and other places of people creating that kind of space to say, well, what if? And uh, and he was saying when they did the Jackson Cush plan for, for Jackson, they started mm-hmm. out with a whole load of different what if questions. The whole thing was based on that. And one of the things that always really interests me is, is you know, how people keep... Uh, what if questions alive over time you know in times when it just looks like well it's never going to happen but they keep it going and and the one i'm always really fascinated about is the is in the us the 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 prison abolition movement which is the most phenomenal what if you know what if we had no prisons what if we had no police what if justice worked in a completely different way i wondered from the work you've done with lots of different groups and maybe with some of those groups what's your sense of how how to what makes a really good what if question and and how do we keep them dynamic over time what makes a good what if question Hmm. well i i think that i guess a bad what if question (laughs) (laughs) is one that's kind of narrowly constrained by 
the status quo. So that, you know, assumes certain elements are unmovable when I feel strong that there's nothing that is unmovable. So, so you mean like, you know, what, what if there was a 2.3% tax cut next year instead of a 3.2% tax cut? Well, that cut. would certainly be a terrible one if question. <laughs> Doesn't leave much room for manoeuvre, does it? <laughs> you know, or even just, um, you know, what if we had um, majority women in Congress? Now, I would love that. That would be great. But it's still a pretty narrow question. Um, you know, what if women had and a full equal political power is a bigger question. Mm, mm. And then you could step out again to, um, you know, what if we all had kind of equal access to kind of safety and the ability to live the life that we want, no matter what our gender was. So, mm. you know, I think that the further out we can get into kind of pinging people into, oh, I've never really thought about that, which is partly why I think the question about abolition the abolition of prisons is, is effective because it feels almost scary <laughs> <laughs> and and it can really get people into well all these horrible things would happen and then you're able to kind of really challenge those underlying assumptions which the best stories do mm. the best stories really kind of make you see we all have underlying assumptions in our stories no matter how you know beautifully liberatory they are they're there and if you can really dig into what those are that's really when you can align with kind of people's values and communicate those values more clearly. People who might not have been interested in our issues otherwise. Mm. Um, in the, also, sorry. Oh, well, you had also asked about how do we kind of make those those what if questions last or. Yeah, yeah, like, because, you know, that, that, that prison abolition question has been around since the 60s, I think, as far or probably yeah. before then. You know that's that's a long time to keep a to keep a what if question alive, uh -huh. when the thing that you're trying to respond to is just getting worse and worse and worse and bigger and bigger and more and more horrible. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's whether you had any sense of how, 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 those movements. So so Kaliakuno's answer to this was he said, um, he said that he thought it was because, because those questions always had one foot in history. So he said there was always that sense of, yeah, it's really shit, but it was a lot more shit 100 years ago, and it was even more shit 200 years ago. So mm -hmm. the question was looked at in the, in, in, in the sense of a broader scale sense that things were kind of improving a bit, do you know? Mm -hmm. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I would say when people have a a vision or a sense of possibility, which is kind of what you're talking about with a what if question. Um, I think our connection to holding on to that hope is often kind of rooted in both ancestral stories, but also in our personal stories. And so, um, like with the question about prison questions, or about the abolition of prisons. Now, you could say maybe a bigger picture question would be like, what if you're the world? What if everyone could be safe? And yeah. what would that look like? And safety would include people returning from prison and being kind of integrated into communities and not needing them. And that question might help us get to a different place of not kind of challenging people's existing frames around 
uh, prisons, maybe that would be a question that, I don't know, if that would be as long-lasting. But I think that why questions like that, or what a question about like, gender or the environment linger, I mean, I think it really is. It's because they're hooked into something that feels really deep in our bodies and that is often about story. Because stories are how we understand the world. It's a big part of our work. Um, is really mapping out the existing stories and, and helping make them visible for folks. That we all kind of have this this natural need as human beings to create stories and to pass down stories to, to understand the chaotic world around us. And so when a, a what if question or when a, a big hopeful vision may feel impossible in the current political moment, but feels really connected to something about how we understand ourselves or we understand our families or our, our, our history um, and a particular story about history. I, you know, for me, I think, as a black person, I have a lot of history around uh, the lack of freedom, which makes that that question particularly impactful. And so I think that's partly why those those kind of what if questions last so long. Mm. That's why people can kind of hold on to a hopeful vision for decades or, or sometimes for centuries. Mm. Thank you. Um, in, in the forward of the book Reimagining Change, which sets out your methodology, as I understand mm-hmm. it. So it says that uh, there's a quote that says, Today the whole dominant narrative itself seems to be up for popular reconsideration. <laughs> and when I read that, I wondered in the age of Trump if you would argue that that is still the case. Or if it's uh, less so than it was. Definitely. Definitely, even more so. Okay, good, 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 good. good. Tell me why. (laughs) Well, because I feel like, uh, yeah, the power of stories is just even more ever-present, which is something that I see in my work, that people, um, yeah, are talking about the power of kind of narrative and the ability to create an entire kind of complicated reality, uh, regardless of whether it's true. And so I think, I, I just know in my past work in training groups, uh, sometimes you would spend a lot of time just trying to get people into like a creative space to really kind of think about um, this is an opportunity to create a whole new political reality. And now people get it really fast because they've seen it happen dramatically in their own lifetime, in their own past couple of years. So, I mean, I'm not a Trump supporter, obviously, but it's been really fascinating to see that as an opportunity for people to see that that power of stories. Um, I think about coal communities. So there's been so much work, you know, transition work for years and um, in coal mining communities and coal power plants in the U.S. And uh, it's not that I think, from what I hear, kind of the folks who are doing that direct work, that uh, that miners and mining communities don't know that the end is coming. Like, this is clearly factually true um but i think that the story that trump has told about the power of coal and the future of coal totally divorced from any reality and I mean, how, clean it is. how much coal is there <laughs> and how it's so. and, and how if you call it clean coal it's just magically clean oh goodness <laughs> i thought we got it over that but it just that's that's the meme that won't die <laughs> clean coal <laughs> And yeah, it's like, it's all going to be okay. And like this way of life, you know, it's really tapping into this, these values that folks have about 
whole is a way of life in this community. And um, I mean, it's it's upsetting, obviously, but it's also it's such effective storytelling. And I think that that has, I think it's really helped groups see the, the kind of power of that work, even when it is difficult. And I think it's created an opportunity for people to want to kind of tell dramatically alternative stories and to do, like, it just feels like there's this exciting moment of doing this, a really significant shift. And I don't know if we'll take advantage of it. Because mm. I think we've had those opportunities before. And we haven't always taken advantage of them. Mm. Um, I'm fascinated by how we need to help people uh, be able to imagine the world where things turned out okay. You know, it feels like there's so many dystopian stories, particularly in terms of climate change. There's so much dystopian stuff around. There's so many people who've kind of given up. Mm-hmm. And and my sense is that one of the things that's really useful is to help people to imagine what it could be maybe like 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future, if we if we turn this around now, to give people mm-hmm. a taste of that, to, 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 to help people into to feel into that space, whether it's through visualization stuff or music or poetry or films or whatever to just mm-hmm. um you know what would it be like if we woke up in 20 years 30 years and we had done this and it had worked mm-hmm. and you know you're walking around in that world how can storytelling help us do this and how can we become the best storytellers we can be hmm. well yeah, I think that storytelling can help move the goalposts for what feels politically realistic for folks, because it can kind of stretch us into that. Um, and particularly, that's something I see in our trains, but also just in the groups that we work with. I mean, people are just naturally great storytellers. I mean, there there are skills that we can, can teach people about how to cast sympathetic characters or or a really clear conflict. Uh, but but people are just really good at stories like there are just constructs around stories that we've absorbed and so um i think part of it is about being a better storyteller just by kind of stretching our muscles um creating kind of spaces where that's okay particularly for activists like we sometimes think of our creative work as something separate and you know i really feel like it's it is so integrated and that's partly why i think people get attached and find a lot of healing in doing storytelling and doing story-based strategy because it is linking a political analysis and a political point of view with that kind of creative work. And it's always interesting to me how many people have that creative side, they just don't necessarily link it, whether we're, you know, we have so many musicians in the movement and, um, and playwrights and writers or, or gardeners or kind of amazing pastry chefs. And, you know, I think there is something about that creativity that kind of brings you to that work. But anyway, but you had talked about um, stories, kind of particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know. Did I answer your question? <laughs> Remind me what it was. Well, so, I started thinking so about if... baking and then that, that, that I got distracted. <laughs> um, I guess it's if, if we want to... You know, I suppose it's the thing I get sometimes with the transition movement. People say, "Oh, it's very utopian." You know, it's always a sort oh, of, right. it's always that term that's used to dismiss anything that's vaguely ambitious. Is that oh, you're very mm-hmm. utopian? You know, whereas actually for me, it's not utopian at all because it's all things I've already seen. It's 
mm-hmm. you know it's the urban agriculture stuff in I've seen him I saw in Milwaukee and urban agriculture stuff I've seen in Berlin and renewable energy stuff in Germany and you know it's like it's all kind of there and so for me it's not like about helping people to imagine a utopia it's helping them to imagine a future kind of where it turns out okay you know there's mm-hmm. an amazing there's an author called Mohsin Hamid wrote a book called The Reluctant Fundamentalist and he wrote a book called East West recently that was all about migration and it was set in Syria this couple who met in Syria and then he had this thing where all of a sudden these mysterious sort of black doors started appearing in different places in Syria and if you went through them then it just randomly took you somewhere else in the world it was like a metaphor for free movement and free migration and at the end of the book was set about 20 years in the future where basically everybody who wanted to move had moved and they'd arrived somewhere and they'd settled down and they'd got somewhere to live and they'd got some work and it wasn't perfect but it was kind of okay Ooh. and I'm kind of interested in, in, in that sort of how we become how we help people uh, you know if we had lots of people out and about just telling those stories about what it would be like if it turned out okay mm-hmm. then it's able, then it lifts us up over the seeming obstacles right in front of us to, to kind of what's behind it oh yeah <clears throat> well, you know I got my start in activism to the community garden work and so I think that it, that perspective is easier for a lot of folks who are doing land-based work, who are doing uh, farming work and community agriculture, because you have something physical to relate your hopes to. You know, you're giving people a mini version of what the world could look like through your experimental farm or um, your educational garden space. And I think that that's something that other movements have been trying to do but it is it is easier and i think part of that is that it gives people a kind of visual connection to the hope that they might have for the future now it doesn't mean they can't still be skeptical and i have definitely heard plenty of skeptics about well you can't feed everybody with you know community gardens or agriculture or blah blah blah, blah. um but which i won't even get into but you know i think that if you're if you're just trying to use it to give people a sense of what the future could look like, it can be very effective. Um, you know, some of the most effective tactics you know, around direct actions, I think, are when you give people an opportunity to do some positive foreshadowing. Now, negative foreshadowing or fear-based messaging, it can also be very effective. But I think that for movement groups, particularly working on climate issues, the negative foreshadowing is so intense already. <laughs> People have been hearing it for a long time. And yet it has not reflected in dramatic action, right? So I think it really makes sense strategically to focus more on positive foreshadowing and creating an alternative future that people can get behind and be excited about. Uh, because people who are scared, um, it's just so easy to get fatalistic. Can you just explain what you mean by the word foreshadowing, which might be a bit of a new one to people who are listening? <laughs> Sure. So um, the idea for shattering and storytelling is you want to give people a sense of where the story is going. So perhaps early on in the story, you give them, a, a, you give the reader, the watcher of the film, a hint of what's going to happen later on. So a classic example would be in a film, um, uh, there might be a moment where there's a gun over the over the mantle of a house and you have a long pan, you see the gun and nothing's, no one's talking about it right now, but you have this hint that that 
somehow is going to feature mm-hmm. later on in the story. And so then you're not surprised when you kind of see it later on. And I gave you a hook to kind of connect you. So, um, so that's kind of foreshadowing in storytelling. And we use it a lot in our kind of creative work and our movement work, a lot in our visioning work to kind of help people try to imagine through storytelling kind of what the future could look like for themselves and to foreshadow that um, specifically through their messaging and through the stories that they tell about society. So, uh, so in the context of kind of climate justice, just you know, this week there are kind of more reports that came out. Pretty much on a weekly basis, we're getting a lot of negative foreshadowing that describes the future that's going to happen, either if we don't make a change, or more recently, the future that will happen regardless of what we do, but uh, that it will be even worse <laughs> if we don't make a change. And so I think doing positive foreshadowing is really trying to help folks see that there could be a transition, a just transition in society that actually results in more liberation and in a world that could be different. So instead of scanning across and seeing a gun on a mantelpiece, you mean that it's sort of dropping in things into whatever we're doing that just give people a taste of what we could what the world could be like if we if we mm-hmm. got this right mm-hmm. an example that we use a lot which i actually now can't remember which city this was in was um you know a group of organizers frustrated that the mayor was not putting funding towards childcare, taking over the mayor's office and turning it into an impromptu daycare center for the day <laughs> So is that a, a, long, a long-term strategy that's going to work the mayor's office turning into a daycare center? No, but it's really effective at kind of giving you a sense of, oh, this is what the world could look like. Um, and it also is very fun. And uh, creativity is fun, which is another reason that we like to focus on it. So yeah, so it's about kind of putting in little moments and, and hence really strategically in our tactics and thinking about how we can foreshadow that, that future. It's not mm-hmm. just about the horrible things that will happen, but it's about our positive vision. One of the things that you, you mentioned when you were talking before there, you said about spaces where that's okay. You know, I wonder when you when you create the space for people to come together with other people who they might not know beforehand, and they're coming together to be imaginative, to become storytellers. Have you noticed over the years you've done this work that there are certain kind of ingredients that are vital to, to, to creating that space? If everyone just comes in off the street and they're all busy and stressed and you know they're not going to be it's not going to really click so much so as as a facilitator for that how do you create that basket or whatever that can hold them in being imaginative mm-hmm. well i think part of it is about creating um time and space because creativity really takes that sense of spaciousness and so if you're asking folks to do like really deep creative work that sometimes is getting that something um, really hurtful that may have happened to them personally or in their their communities, that is hard to do in an hour. So that is maybe impossible (laughs) to do in an hour. So, you know, we really try to encourage folks to do a half day or um, do a day with us or to perhaps kind of do, we're we're launching, sorry, we're launching this online training program actually this month. And um, so it'll be kind of a series of shorter trainings for folks to do. And, you know, the idea is just to kind of create that space. I mean, it's about the literal space and it's about um, connecting to people holistically to who they really are 
not who we come in at um, our role in our organization, but who we are kind of deeply and doing a lot of personal sharing as part of that. And pers- 